listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw, your friendly guitar doctor. With over 20 years of experience building and repairing guitars, this is a podcast about guitar repair, guitar building, guitar news, guitar science, and guitar opinions. Sitting beside me is my lovely wife and co-host, Melissa. This is a question and answer episode where we will respond to listener-submitted emails. I will read the questions and Eric will try to answer them. We've got some good questions today. Questions about Les Paul serial numbers, Gibson serial numbers. Questions about glue. Glue. Oh, yeah. Questions about truss rods. We'll get to all of that. What's on your bench? Uh, Right now, currently, I am working on a 1965 Martin Double Ot 18, a beautiful little guitar. Try saying that five and, times fast. And uh, it's in great shape. It's crack-free, which I love to see on a vintage Martin. And the bridge was lifting up, so I am I took the bridge off today, and I'm going to glue it back on tomorrow using hot hide glue. Cool. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, this guitar doesn't need a neck reset, and it does not look like it's ever had one. It's unusual to see a Martin that's, you know, 50 years old that doesn't need a neck reset. Well. Yeah, it's it's held up well. It's, cool. it's in great shape. I stuck a mirror and a light in there today and looked at the bridge plate and it's like pristine. It's just this guitar was really well taken care of. The guy, the customer that brought it to me, he bought it new. Whoa. Yeah, he bought it he bought it new in 1965. He said 66. You know, so maybe it sat in the music store for a while or I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Right. So that's fun. He took good care of it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I'm refretting a few vintage Fender necks, a couple of uh, necks that were sent to me from parts unknown. Cool. Across the country, coast to coast. Ships at sea. Uh, And, (laughs) no. (laughs) And, uh, what? What else am I working on? Man, I bought some really nice little guitars lately. Tell us about them. I bought a, a 1950s Supro Archtop electric guitar. It looks like a Harmony, but it's not. It's a Supro. It's, but it's very cool. Blonde with like fake tiger stripe, like painted on, you know, tiger, yeah. tiger stripe under the blonde. Cool. With a single pickup, like a little leatherette and gold uh, neck pickup. Looks like a humbucker, but it's not. It's one of those fake-out Supro pickups that 
They look like a humbucker, but they're actually a big fat single coil. And uh, it has a really cool, like, off-white big pit guard with knobs on the pit guard. It's called a Supro El Capitan. Ooh. Yeah, it's very cool. I'm excited about that. I'm going to fix it up and... I don't know. I might keep it and might sell it. I don't know. Cool. But I find these old guitars and I buy them. I have to. Today I bought a, a mid-60s Harmony. Nice. Yeah, like a... It's not a Sovereign, but it's it looks... You know, it's one of the nicer ones. It has a truss rod, so... That's, that's the kind you want when you find an old Harmony. Cool. Yeah, it has an adjustable truss rod. It's just a little flat top. It's about the same size as this double odd 18 I'm working on. It's just a slightly smaller, not quite a dreadnought, just a slightly smaller uh, body. Yeah. Neato. Yeah. What are you working on? Uh, I have two custom straps, two matching straps for a band in Las Vegas called Foreseeing Fools on my bench right now. Hmm. It's a husband and wife team, and they're cool. Uh, but it's kind of a fun little project. I, fun fact, I made a pair of them and started dying one and ru- ruined it. And so I had to start oh, yeah. over and it was yeah. awful. And I saw that. Shameful. I saw that on your Instagram feed. Yeah. yeah, but I'm back in business. One's died and the other one's waiting to be died. And so it's all good. It's all good. You know, it's an interesting, it's interesting to compare our two jobs like if i ruin a guitar that's a big problem yeah if you ruin a strap you can just cut a new piece of leather and start over that's kind of slick yeah i mean occasionally i'll get a customer that sends me a guitar strap for repair though and if i screw that up you know and so that's that's really the, the difference is that you're working on customer stuff yeah versus thankfully i don't ruin guitars so that's that's a bonus Well, I ruined straps. It's a bonus. Let's take some calls. Hello, Eric. This is Micah Bruce from Omaha, Nebraska. Hello, Micah. I just was reading on your Instagram feed, which is excellent, by the way. Thank you. About your Gibson flat top that you're doing a neck reset, et cetera, on. You mentioned the dovetail having the top over the joint, which... I've encountered that several times in neck resets. It's not very much fun. No. I would love to hear your take on how you how you get the neck off. Uh, there's lots of strategies to that. Um, is it cutting the end of the fingerboard off? Is it somehow getting sneaky under there? I, I don't know. What do you do? What What did you do? in that scenario let us know um thank you great podcast thanks thanks thank you i appreciate it and thanks for calling thanks for listening uh yeah you know it's an unusual thing and you don't encounter it very often i don't know why you know gibson made guitars a certain way for decades and then all of a sudden they like switch it up and they do this they did this weird thing where they they put the neck in then they put the top on, and then they put the fingerboard on. So if you want to get that neck off, you've got a big problem. Because in between the fingerboard and the uh, the neck is a little section of, of top. 
So it doesn't just slide out like it would on a Martin or like it would on a earlier Gibson. This was mm-hmm. this was a seventies Gibson Hummingbird. Cool guitar. It's a weird guitar. Like it's braced weird and it has some strange quirks. But uh yeah, very very problematic to remove the neck on those. So uh you'll see you know, because it the neck will be hard to remove, right? It starts sliding out, but you're you're feeling more tension and more pushback than you should, and you start looking at it and you're like, Oh no, the 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 dovetail is pushing the top out a little bit. Oh no. Yeah. Um here's a slick trick that you can do. That same fret that you that you inject steam into, mm-hmm. you can take a Dremel cutoff wheel and saw through <gasps> the fret slot into the top and cut the top that way. Just in the middle of the fret slot, you're not going to go all the way to the edges. That way, you don't have to. Re- that way, you don't have to cut off the whole. A lot of luthiers, they'll remove that. They'll just saw through the whole fret slot and remove the whole fingerboard extension to get those off. Wow. And I don't like that. And I mean, that is like a last resort, last ditch effort thing. You shouldn't have to do that. Um, you can use a Dremel cutoff wheel on this one. It, I got it out far enough that the, the top split just a little bit where the dovetail was pushing it out. And I was able to take a flush cut thin saw and sneak it in, <laughs> under, sneak it in there under the uh, fingerboard extension and saw through the top where it was lifting up uh, just right next to the dovetail tricky little tricky little thing but then then it came out cool yeah so <clears throat> And then when you put it back on, did you then have to replace that piece of top that you took off? Well, the piece of top um, that, yeah, I, yeah, I, the the cut that I made, I was able to um, to patch everything back together, and it's all underneath the fingerboard extension. Right, so you can't tell anything yeah, happened. And yeah, it, and, and it, it runs across um, all the braces that are there underneath the fingerboard extension and the neck block, and it's pretty easy to piece that all back together. So it's not the end of the world. If you encounter that, it's it's stressful at first, but, you know, once you get them off, it's, you know, pe- piecing them back together is no big deal. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, those are tricky. I don't like those. Don't like those at all. Those are, those are <laughs> never, that's never a fun surprise. Like, yeah. Oh, they did not want this guitar to come apart ever. It's interesting that you know I, I've thought about this before. Did Martin and Gibson? You know, neck resets. Luther, it, it's only been like a thing for, since, you know, maybe the '60s or '70s, and really a thing since you know. Well, later. I, I mean, I've got old guitar repair books that talk about neck resets, but it's, it's you know. It doesn't say how to do it or anything like that. That's an interesting thing. So anyway, my point is, when they built these guitars, did th- were they thinking forward 
to a time that this neck might need to come off? No. I think you're right. I don't think so. I mean, when you when you look at a Martin, I think maybe they 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 were. I think that maybe were because I have heard that they they did factory neck resets going way back at Martin. But it was like sorcery, and they didn't talk about it, and they didn't, they wouldn't tell you what they did. You sent them the guitar, and they fixed it, and they wouldn't really tell you what they did. Like, yep, it's fixed. There you go. Wow. Yeah. By the way, I've heard that neck resets are no longer included in Martin's lifetime warranty for the original owner. Hmm. Did we talk about that on the show? I don't think so. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah, neck reset stuff, that's, that's always fun. Uh, that guitar's done, by the way. That that 70s Gibson Hummingbird. It's just hanging in my shop. They need to come pick it up. Uh, here you go. Hi, Eric and Melissa. This is Brannon calling once again from the cornfields of Indiana. And yes, it's Brannon like Shannon without a D. Hello, uh, Brannon. Thought I'd call in since you're asking for and prioritize calls, although I do think a lot of people write in because they really enjoy hearing Melissa read their question. That seems like more fun than hearing my own voice. But in any case, I wanted to get personal and wondered if we could talk about our nuts. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, Okay to say. Yeah, I uh, I have never made a nut from scratch or slotted one from an unslotted... uh, pre-shaped Blank. nut, yeah. but I have fit some nuts on guitars. Uh, just did one recently out of that Teflon impregnated Tusk XL material on a, mm-hmm. a Bigsby equipped, I know, I know, uh, the Armin guitar that I have from <laughs> Korea that was made in the late 90s. I really like that guitar, and it's helped the intonation and the stability uh, of that guitar a lot. But I know that making nuts is one of the most artful and one of the most nuanced things that guitar technicians have to learn to do, uh, especially making them from scratch. And it's something, you know, I figure you got to start somewhere. So I already have a set of nut slotting files from Stumac. Uh, what other tools do I need if I want to start learning how to make nuts? Do you have any advice for me? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I guess uh, kind of a meta question is um, do you really think every guitar needs a bone nut? If you have a guitar with a plastic nut and it's doing its job and it sounds good um, and it's set up right, is it really worth messing with? Is it always a, an upgrade that you would recommend? Uh, how do you make that distinction? So any insight you have on that would be great. Thanks so much uh, for all your work and all the education I'm receiving from your podcast. You guys are awesome. See ya. Right on. Thank you. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, yeah, you know, it's not always a recommended upgrade, and the reason I say that is there's a lot of vintage guitars that don't have bone nuts that I would not replace the perfectly good nut on there with a bone nut just because you want a bone nut. It hurts the value. So, like, let's say you have a valuable old vintage Les Paul. Those have, like, a weird nylon nut. So, uh, I wouldn't always recommend it, um... There's some old, old guitars have ebony nuts. Uh, And, uh, you know, a lot of guitars have a perfectly serviceable plastic nut. It depends on the guitar and on you. You know, if you like the guitar and 
it doesn't bother you that there's a plastic nut on there and it's working perfectly, then, I mean, really, you know, I guess leave it. But if you're listening to this podcast, you probably like to modify your guitars. And uh, a bone nut is a great upgrade on a on a uh, a guitar with a plastic nut. I think I you know I would say I almost always recommend it on you know on a decent guitar on a guitar that's worth it right yeah anyway uh, what other tools might you need you've got the slotting files well calipers are really handy so. When you're cutting and sanding and shaping the bone blank to fit the slot, uh, calipers are really handy uh, to get the size right, right? Um, I use a belt sander for the rough and dirty first stages of shaping. It speeds things along. Um, if you've got a really long piece of bone blank, uh, and you need to cut it, you can cut it with a saw, you can cut it with a, uh, a a band saw, or with a scroll saw, or just with a hand saw, you know. But most bone blanks, if you, I don't know what, did he say what kind of guitar he's doing a nut on? He's just talking uh, generally, a generally, a, yeah. oh, was it, was it a Gretsch or a Dearmond or something? Uh, oh yeah, he's got what, something with a, the, a big crotch on it, a Bigsby. Uh, and a, I'm sorry, I call those a, I call it a crutch. Mm-hmm. Melissa's not amused. It's funny, they look like a crutch. Oh, that is so funny. Okay, and uh, so to 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 fit that properly, um, the calipers really come in handy. Uh, I like to sand and polish the bone after I'm done making the nut. So sandpaper, like, you know, once it's kind of shaped and roughed in and then slotted, then I like to sand it with, you know, progressively finer grit sandpaper, maybe starting with, I don't know, uh, 400 and then 600, then 800, then, then use some polishing compound and you can polish it up to where it really looks nice, you know, nice and shiny. Uh... One th- really handy thing to have if you don't already have it is a string spacing rule. Stumaxel's a good one. I'm sure they're available at other places, but the string spacing rule is really handy because generally when you're cutting the slots of a nut, you want the outer strings to be about an eighth of an inch in from the edges. Right? That's easy. Eighth of an inch... Mark it with a pencil, eighth of an inch, mark it with a pencil on each side. Uh, now you've got to make pencil marks for your other slots. How do you do that? Some people just do it equidistant. Well, the problem with that is the bass strings are fatter than, the, than the, the treble strings. And so you end up with kind of a bunched up feeling uh on the bass strings. Mm-hmm. The slick trick is to uh, factor in the width of the string and go from string edge to string edge. And Stuart McDonald has made a really great ruler that has slots in it that you lay it over your outer marks that you made 
an eighth of an inch from the edge. Mm -hmm. And then it says treble on this side and bass on this side. And then you can make the other notches. It takes all the math out of it. And it, it, you know, you can figure that out if you want, if you really want to, and you, you have nothing to do all day. I guess you could do that using math, but the string spacing rule makes it so easy. Uh, especially, you know, for me, I'm I make bone nuts all the time. I that is an invaluable tool. Yeah, it sounds like it really rules. Now here you are making fun of me, <laughs> and now you you're, now you're just now you're just gonna whip out a pun like a like nothing ever happened. Like you haven't been. <laughs> I was saving that one. Do you have anything else? No. No. Hello, Eric and Melissa. This is Drew from Wisconsin. Uh, I found out about your th- show through the fretboard journal, like so many other people. Oh, good. And when I when I found it, I couldn't couldn't believe it existed. I was <laughs> shocked. I've listened to other guitar podcasts, but everything was about you know gear and products and all that. I know. I hate and that. I I'm do. a fellow guitar tech here. Good. In Wisconsin, so I was just thrilled to find your show, and I, I found it about a month and a half ago, and I've listened to all 80 episodes. Whoa. And, yeah, thank you so much for making it. I've learned a lot of really awesome tips. Good. Appreciate both you guys doing it. So, right now, I have a, a uh, Gibson SG in the shop for a customer, and he has push-pull pots for his volumes, for splitting the single coils. He is wanting to know how to get the out-of-phase sound the least invasive way possible. So I think it's probably not possible, um, but I wanted to ask you, is there a way to make one of the push-pull pots split both coils together, or is that impossible when you have dedicated push-pull pots for each volume? Uh, Because then we were thinking we could turn the other one into in-phase, out-of-phase. Or is there a way to hardwire it? So it's always out of phase in the middle position because he's okay with that too. Yeah. So I know you talked about this a little bit ago with, uh, in regards to which way you set the pickup in the cavity where the screws are toward the neck and then in the bridge, screws are towards the bridge. And you said that has nothing to do with phase. Right. But I was wondering if you could tell us it's basically a Gibson Les Paul wiring style, uh, all the options to get that out of phase sound. They are four conductor. Uh, thanks so much for doing the show. I absolutely love it. And I look forward to hearing my answer. Thank you. Bye. Yep. Thank you. Um, so there's, there are two considerations here. Let's just talk about one single humbucker. Okay. One single humbucker. There's two coils. And you just told me that they're four, it's four conductor wire. You can take and get an out of phase sound. Uh, just using that pickup, right? You can make it out of phase with itself because there are two coils. Okay? Um, the other way to do it, and I'm just not... I'm, the reason I'm talking about this is because I'm not sure what you want to do. Let's talk about two humbuckers. You can take two humbuckers and make it so that it sounds... It gets an out-of-phase sound when they're both on. So I'm not sure which one you're asking about. 
but I assume you're saying you want it an out-of-phase sound when both humbuckers are on. And if that's the case, uh, that's pretty easy to do. You can either do it using the four-conductor wiring by switching a couple wires around. And if if you don't know how to do that, you need to find the right schematic uh, in order to enable you to do that. The other way to do it is you can take the base plate of the pickup off and flip the magnet over. If you flip the magnet over, then it changes the magnetic polarity of each coil. And that will make the pickup out of phase with the other one. So if you have you have two humbuckers, they're out of phase with each other. If you use only one pickup, it sounds normal and full and like a normal humbucker. Okay, if you use only one pickup, either the neck pickup or the bridge pickup. When you put it when you put the switch in the middle, they're out of phase, so there's a lot of um what what happens is with a, with with phase canceling, the pickups are actually canceling out certain frequencies instead of adding them together. So you you end up with some frequencies missing, and that's why you with when you have the out of phase sound, that's why you have this weird hollowed out nasal sound is because there's a lot of frequencies getting canceled out. So there's there's two ways to do it. One is with the wiring. The other is with flipping the magnet over, and it it depends on <laughs> it depends on how you're wiring it, how you're going to do that. But what you need to do is find the right schematic for it, and a Google search should help you. If you're really stuck and you really if you cannot figure out how to do that, you can email me and I can I can walk you through it. But um, Basically, uh, it it should be it should be pretty painless. It should be pretty easy to do. Yeah, he didn't really say what what the uh, push pull pots are doing now. I guess they're coil splitting, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. Well, I'm asking you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can you can you can use one of those existing push pull pots to do your phase reversal if you're going to do it with the wiring. So, yeah. But if he doesn't mind it being out of phase in the middle all the time, which it by the way, kudos, because that's, I love that. I, I love that in a guitar when you're out of phase in the middle. Uh, flip the magnet. That's what I would do. Anyhow, that's it on the calls. Let's take some, uh, let's take some, some letters here, some emails. Let's read some emails. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Eric and Melissa, I'm a longtime fan of the show and avid listener. Last episode, a caller asked about the gap-filling properties of PVA glue, a.k.a. wood glue. I completely agree with you that high glue is superior for tonal reasons, but isn't a good solution if you don't have a good mating surface to begin with. 
A fellow builder recently turned me on to the tight bond extend formula. It does take longer to set up, but has even better gap filling properties and dries hard. Not quite hide glue hard, but much better that than standard rubbery tone sucking wood glue. <laughs> I've been using it for the past six months and with good results. The glue seams are less noticeable and I believe that because it dries harder, it should have improved transfer of the string energy. Just wanted to share that tip. That's from David Slack of Hewn Guitars in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks, David. Man, I have not tried that. I'm going to buy a bottle and do some experimentation with it. Yeah, man. Thank you, David. Hello, Eric and Melissa. Thank you for answering my question regarding the Clusen tuners on Telecasters. I got hip to your podcast through the Truth About Vintage Amps podcast, and I have been working my way through all of the episodes from the beginning. I'm only of the... I'm only a third of the way there. It surely makes my commute to work more enjoyable. Good. My question is a follow-up regarding my 52 reissue Telecaster. The truss rod is period correct in that the adjustment is made at the heel of the neck. What's the deal with that? <laughs> to make an adjustment, you have to take the neck off. Yeah. What is the advantage of that design? Thanks again, Chris from Portland, Oregon. Chris, the joke is that it's to keep people out of there. That's a, that's the joke. That's your joke. But <clears throat> the reality is that you know I was just reading about this. The early the early fenders they didn't have truss rods. I mean we're talking about the prototypes, right? Right. I don't know how many they made without truss rods. Probably less than twenty. I don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. They didn't keep track of how many they made and how many they shipped. Uh, but there's certainly not many. I don't know. Maybe they made a hundred. I don't know. But uh, at some point, Leo, who who was against having a truss rod, right, and Don Randall, who was an early player in the in the Fender Empire, told Leo, "You you got to have a, an adjustable truss rod in there." And Leo said, "No, that maple's hard enough; it's not going to warp." Sure enough, it warped. So uh, they designed this truss rod, and uh, it's basically the same design that Gibson was using. But Gibson's adjust at the headstock, I think, maybe in an effort to be different and, in it, you know, to keep it hidden. I don't know why. Why did they do it that way? I don't know. Personally, to, I like it. Go ahead. Uh, to avoid lawsuits, maybe? Well, the patent, uh, I've, heard, I've heard two conflicting things. One, I've heard that the patent... Uh, had run its course by then and was expired. But, but according to, um, do you remember when we interviewed Mark Arnquist? He claims that that patent, uh, became public domain in 1985. Oh, so I don't know what, I, I don't know. I've, I've never conclusively seen when Gibson's patent stopped. I've read before, uh, that Fender had to pay a few pennies for each guitar to Gibson f- for using that truss rod design. I don't know if that's true or not. Hmm. If anybody can confirm or deny that, that would be great. You know, a lot of this stuff has really been lost to history because Fender didn't really keep records in the early days of, you know, what was going on. And then the only th- way we know about it is from studying the guitars and then interviewing... um 
people that worked there or Leo himself, but, you know, memories are not always reliable. Anyway, why did they make it that way? I don't know, but I'm glad they did because I love it. I think it's great. I like it. I think it looks cool. Uh, I think that it's... I, let me Let me put it this way. When I see a fender where you adjust to the truss rod at the headstock, I don't like that. I think that those look modern and cheesy and cheap. Wow. So, well, sorry. Strong words. Well, that's just me. That's just what... When I see that, I know we're dealing with Mm. uh, a guitar that was made by a company who's not... was not owned by Leo Fender. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Leo sold the company in 64, 65. Uh, and then it became just a name owned by other people. Right. Right. So I like them when they're heel adjust. That's what I like. The, the, uh, is there an advantage, an inherent advantage to that design? I don't know. It looks cool. I kind of like... I kind of like the fact that if you think about it, a truss rod that ends at the heel travels up to and is anchored like under the second fret or third fret. Mm-hmm. And it's basically putting tension on the part of the neck that you want tension on. A headstock adjust truss rod is anchored up at like the 15th fret. So it doesn't go all the way to the end of the... It's not putting tension on the neck all the way to the heel. So that's maybe one advantage of the design, even though that that heel is so thick, plus it's bolted to the body, it's probably, it probably doesn't matter. probably doesn't make any difference, but I like the vintage-style fender truss rod. I well, think, there you go. I think it's perfect. <clears throat> well, thanks, Chris. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hi, Liz here from Emerald City Guitars, located in the heart of historic Pioneer Square in downtown Seattle, Washington. We are one of the world's premier vintage guitar shops, going strong for over 22 years. Specializing in the most rare, the funkiest, and most collectible vintage and pre-owned electric guitars, acoustic guitars, amplifiers, and more. We cater to anyone and everyone, from the guy next door to collectors and famous rock stars. Not only do we pay top dollar for used gear, we also offer trade-ins and consignment. We also have in-house repair and offer free appraisals. We have a variety of social media accounts that we post our goods daily. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at ECGuitars. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and see our daily episodes of the featured Guitar Pick of the Day and Reality of Emerald City Guitars shows. Give us a call to chat in person at 206-382-0231 and visit our online store at www.emeraldcityguitars.com. As you may already know, I make custom leather guitar straps. I hand make each strap from start to finish. I start with a hide of some of the finest vegetable tan leather on the market. Each hide is chosen for exceptional quality, color, and grain. If you haven't been to my website lately, you need to check it out. I've got a bunch of new strap designs and colors listed with more on the way. 
If you don't see the perfect strap, contact me with your custom order idea. Visit malcoleather.com to see examples of custom orders I've done in the past. If you're a dealer, I offer competitive wholesale pricing. Email malcoleather at gmail.com for details. Find me on Facebook, Instagram, and of course, Etsy. If you're listening to this, you get 15% off when you enter code FRETFILES at checkout at melcoleather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O leather.com. Well, I'm not just doing this show for my health. If you need some help with your guitar... If you have a repair you need some help with, if you have a pickup that needs to be rewound, anything at all guitar-related, just let me know. I would love to help you. People send me repairs from all over the states. Not everybody has a tech in their area. Not everybody has a luthier they can trust. Especially if it comes to something kind of complicated, if, if you're you know refretting a vintage guitar or or resetting the neck on an old Martin or something like that. Those are the kind of things you don't want to just trust to anybody. I would love to help you out. Let me know. You can contact me through my website, ericdaw.com, or you can give me a call at 208-557-4329. Hello, Eric and Melissa. Love the show. I'm a new listener and a longtime guitarist. You two make my workday more bearable, and I appreciate your dedication. Thank you, sir. Here is my question. Or ma'am, whatever the case may be. Now, I Eric. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> now, Eric, I know you're not a Gibson fan, but bear with me. I have a 2007 Les Paul Classic, but what's the deal with their sketchy serial numbering on those? Why is it so hard to pinpoint the date and location it was manufactured? Is there a big secret behind it? Should I join the Freemasons just to try and get the secret revealed to me? I love this guitar. I had my tech put a Seymour Duncan Invader humbucker in the bridge position and do a proper setup on it. Now it sounds amazing. Shout out to Sam Wilson. But it would be nice to know a little background on it. Thanks again for all you and Melissa do, and I hope... I have many more podcasts of yours to listen to. That's Talks from Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland rocks. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm honestly the wrong guy to ask. 2007 Gibson serial number. So every now and then Gibson changes the way they do their serial numbers. And I know how the old ones work. I have, I've stopped following it i stopped caring i don't know if i had one i would just go to the internet and look it up if i wanted to know but um yeah i mean it might help to join the freemasons or you could get you could get a little orphan any decoder ring that might help i don't know i honestly don't know i don't i i stopped paying attention to what gibson was doing with their serial numbers i you know and again, if if I needed to look one up, I would just look one up. But if I, apparently the information's not out there. He says it's really hard to pinpoint the date and location it was manufactured. So I don't I don't know. Yeah. Well, I good don't know. luck with that. I, you're asking the wrong guy. Sorry, Talks. I just don't know. 
Hi, Eric and Melissa. First, thanks for taking the time to put out the podcast. I'm 72 episodes in and really enjoying it. I've got a question for Eric. I recently brought my Taylor acoustic guitar to a local independent guy with his own shop. The experience was not great and led to a lot of questions about acoustic guitar setup. I am Hmm. hoping you can help. I'll try. I have generally done my own setup work, including sanding the bottom of the saddle, deepening nut slots, etc., but my understanding is that tailors are supposed to be adjusted by swapping neck shims, not by sanding the saddle. The guitar in question is the best sounding guitar I own, but it's harder to play than most of my guitars because the action is higher. Not alarmingly high, but not ideal. I packed up the tailor and another guitar I have that is set up the way I like it and asked the local luthier to match the tailor to the other guitar. Well, actually, I asked the person at the register. I also asked her if he would adjust the guitar by swapping shims, and her response was, don't worry, he's an expert. He'll do it the right way. I was told I could pick up both guitars in a week. To make a long story short, two months and three trips to the shop later, I got my guitars back. Hmm. Ouch. The action was lower, way lower, lower than the guitar I had asked him to match, about one sixteenth on the bass side at the 12th fret. Uh, I didn't measure the treble side, but it was lower still, and it had obviously been adjusted by sanding the bottom of the saddle, which I could have done myself. In fact, there was almost no break angle over the saddle on the treble side. It played very easily, and there was no obvious buzzing unless I hit it hard, but it just didn't sound very good. I wanted to bring the guitar back to the luthier and ask about this, but getting my guitars back the first time was such an ordeal that I was afraid I'd never see it again if I left it in their hands. I got a factory fresh saddle from another shop and put it in. My guitar sounds glorious again, but the action is now an eighth of an inch higher. Uh, high, and I'm not sure how to proceed. My highest priority is the sound, not low action. So if this is what it takes for great tone, I'm okay with that. But a little lower would be nice. So I have questions. Do you agree that tailors should be adjusted by changing the neck shims rather than sanding the saddle? How much brake angle if the saddle is too little? Is this why the guitar sounded so weak? Or is the low action not allowing the strings to vibrate properly? Or is there an ideal string to soundboard distance for best sound, as some on the internet claim? Any other thoughts? I'm just not sure if I should pursue a lower action or just be happy with what I've got. Thanks so much. That's from Eric. Eric with a K. Thanks, Eric. I'm sorry you've had such a hard time with your tailor here getting it set up right. Um, he wants to know, do I agree tailors should be adjusted by changing neck shims rather than sanding the saddle? And the fact is that it depends on your guitar. It absolutely just depends on your guitar. Um, just like any other guitar, it depends on if the neck angle is proper or not. Um, you know, it, it's like saying a Martin should be adjusted by uh, resetting the neck. And that's not always true. It, it depends on what the neck angle is doing. So what you want, generally, I don't know, I'm not sure about the standard height of a Taylor bridge, but if it's anything like Martin, um, usually they're... Uh, they're somewhere around three eighths of an inch. The bridge, right? Uh huh. Not not the bridge plus saddle, just the bridge. Just the wood part of the bridge, and then your saddle will be roughly another eighth of an inch taller than the bridge, giving you you know four eighths, which is 
a half an inch. Whoa. Right? Whoa. Did I did that blow your mind? Yeah. Why? I'm impressed by your mouth. Are you making fun of me again? <laughs> so, um assuming that the top is not bellied or warped, assuming that the that the bridge is the right height and assuming that the saddle is the right height, when you look down the neck, you want to see a straight line that is aiming where the bridge and the saddle meet. Okay? So you so again, your your bridge should be I don't know, three eighths, somewhere between three eighths and five sixteenths high. Off the top. The wood part of the bridge. And then your saddle is probably another at least eighth eighth inch taller than that. So when you sight the neck, you want to see a nice straight line aiming toward the top of the bridge, not the top of the saddle, not where the top meets the bridge, but the top of the wood bridge, okay? If it's aiming lower than that, then you need to adjust it with a shim. If it's aiming higher than that, you need to adjust the shims. If it's aiming right where I said it should be aiming, then you need to adjust it by adjusting the saddle. It depends on what your guitar needs. Not every tailor. I've I've adjusted plenty of tailors that needed a saddle adjustment, not a neck shim adjustment. It depends on what your guitar needs. It sounds like the shop you took it to doesn't really know what they're doing or had a bad day or something. I don't know. It doesn't sound like you got good service there, yeah. but... Um, it depends on the geometry of what's going on with your guitar. And any good luthier should be able to pick it up and look at it and tell you immediately what's going on with it. Um, you know, hopefully you don't have to talk to the person up at the front desk. You can talk to the person that's going to fix your guitar. So, yeah, I, and it sounds like you're tech savvy. You, you're, you, can, you can lower saddles and file nut slots. Where's the where's the neck aiming? It's a ni- it's a nice straight line, right? You've you've got a nice, pretty straight neck, and if you extend that out over the top of the guitar, where is that line aiming? Is it aiming where the saddle meets the top of the bridge? So, when you're sighting a neck, you want to look down. From, from the headstock. From the headstock. And you're looking along the edge of the fretboard, right? That's right. So from the nut all the way down to the very last fret, that line is what you're talking about. Yeah. Or generally to from from the nut to where the neck meets the body because there's usually a little bit of fall away oh, one, okay. once it meets the body on an acoustic guitar. So the straight line that the neck makes should aim right about where the uh, the saddle meets the bridge. Okay. So, if it if that's where it's aiming, then you need a saddle adjustment. I hope that makes sense. I hope that helps you, Eric. Thanks for the question. Hi guys, love the podcast. I'm thinking about ordering ordering a guitar from you. Well, thank you. And I wanted to know what fret size and neck profile and fingerboard radius you recommend. Hmm. I'm more of a beginner, so I don't really have a preference yet. Thanks, Scott. Well, you hit the nail on the head when you said preference, because that's what it is. It's preference. 
Um, I tell people, and I'm sure if you're a listener to the podcast, you've heard this many times before. In fact, Melissa can probably probably knows what I'm going to say. Ice cream flavor. It's like ice cream flavors. Just because I like chocolate doesn't mean you're going to like it. You might like vanilla. So it is preference. What I would recommend to you would be to, um, I'm sure you have guitars, right? You, you say you're you're more of a beginner, but I'm sure you have a guitar. Figure out what fingerboard radius it has. Figure out what fret size it has. Figure out how thick the neck is, what kind of neck profile it has. And do you like it? I don't care if it's an Esteban. Do you like it? Um, try a bunch of different guitars that have different fret size and different fingerboard radiuses. Any good guitar store should be able to tell you, hey, I want to try a guitar with a vintage-style seven and a quarter inch radius. Do you have one? And if they say, oh, I don't know, then you're in the wrong place. Find a guitar store that knows that. That might be tough. Not every town has one. But um, if you can try some out, that would really help you. Uh, if you really, really twist my arm and you just want my recommendation, like if you if you rephrased your question and said, Eric, if you were ordering a guitar from yourself, what would you order? I would order a soft V-neck, seven and a quarter inch radius, vintage size frets. That's 80 thousandths wide by 40 thousandths of an inch high. That's what I would order. But, again, ice cream flavors, that might not be what you like, but that's what I would order. Um, anyhow, thanks for the question, Scott, and I look forward to making a guitar for you someday if you're thinking about that. Hi, Eric and Melissa. Question for you. I have a Gretsch Synchronatic Synchromatic Archtop Electric, yeah. and I have trouble keeping the floating rosewood bridge in place. My tech recommended pinning it in place with two little hardware tacks. Is this your method as well? How do you deal with archtop, archtop bridges that slide around and wreck intonation? Thanks, Ken in Oregon. Thanks, Ken. Uh, you can do that, I and I've... I've done that before uh, when it's been requested of me. Uh, my preferred method is I use really strong double-sided tape to keep those in place. What I like to do is I set up the guitar, intonate it so that it's perfectly intonated, and then I take a fine point sharpie and mark on the top where the bridge is going to sit exactly. Then I'll loosen up the strings, take the bridge off, Take you know they make this 3M makes a really thin, very strong, very thin double-sided tape. It's like it's like Scotch tape th thickness, right? Uh -huh. Very thin, except super sticky on both sides. So you put that on the bottom side of your bridge, and then put it where it needs to go, and then restring the guitar, and that seems to work really well. Um, if you really want it pinned and and the advantage of of the advantage of double sided tape is that you're not drilling a hole in your guitar or t tapping a hole in your guitar with a little hardware tack i kind of don't like that only because um if your guitar gets real dry it that can crack so you're making a little hole in the top of your guitar and that's not really you know yeah. that that could that could be the beginning of a crack eventually so it's not something i would do to a vintage guitar 
if you've got a 2017 Gretsch Synchromatic that you want to do it to, you know, have a good time. I think that that's fine. Does the double-sided tape uh, damage the finish, though? I mean, can you get that off if you need to? Yeah. How do you get it off? Naphtha. Oh. Or Ronsonol, you know, the lighter fluid. And you, it just, t- like, you don't have to peel anything off? You just put the stuff on and... Well, yeah. I mean, it, like, you soak it in naphtha and oh, then it kind of okay. rolls off All right, I see. I see. pretty easily. Uh, yeah. You can remove that, absolutely. It's strong stuff, so if you're doing that on a vintage guitar, it it could take finish up with it. So, you know, but... Um, the only complaints I've ever, the only times that I've ever pinned the bridge instead of taping it was people were really concerned that having tape there was going to, uh, inhibit string vibration and tone and sustain. But in my experience, it, it doesn't really, I think that it sounds fine either way. Uh, but you know, either solution I think is going to work for you. Um, the double-sided tape thing is nice because, let's say right now you're using 11 through 49 Diodario strings, right? Mm-hmm. And in the future you think, man, you know what, I, I want to go to 12s or I want to play flat wounds with a, with a wound G or I want to do something different. Well, if your bridge is nailed into place, then... You're kind of stuck with what you got. You can't re-intonate it for a different different setup. Yeah. So I like the double-sated tape. That's nice. Anyhow, that does it for this episode of the Fret Files podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for participating. If you would like to participate in the show, and I strongly recommend that you do, you can do so by going to my website, ericdaw.com. That's just my name, E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Uh, you can click on the contact link there and submit your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. That number is 757-774-8482. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next time. Good night.